1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, my name is Avery Wyman, and I'm the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Environmental Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Dr. Tracy Perkins about her book, Evolution of a Movement, Four Decades of California Environmental Justice Activism, which was published by the University of California Press in 2022. Dr. Perkins is an associate professor in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. She specializes in social inequality social movements and the environment through a focus on environmental justice activism in addition to her academic writing perkins documents environmental justice activism for public audiences examples include voices from the valley environmental justice in California's san joaquin valley in her own words remembering teresa de onda pesticides activist and the buzzard point oral history project in washington dc There's also a project in development to create a digital archive and multimedia storytelling website on a 1990s era anti nuclear waste landfill campaign along the lower Colorado River. She is a through and through pupil of the UC system earning her BA in developmental studies at UC Berkeley, her MA in community development at UC Davis, and her PhD in sociology at UC Santa Cruz. Her book, Evolution of a Movement, examines four decades of environmental justice activism in the state of California from the 1980s through the 2010s. In it, she examines how and why activist tactics have changed, the pros and cons of professionalization and institutionalization of environmental justice activism, how race and class inequity intersect with environmental inequity, and many other topics that will be the subject of our conversation today. So with this short introduction in place, Dr. Perkins, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. So why don't we get started with just a question about you. So how did you come to this project and what was the origin of your interest in writing about this? Uh, This project grew out of my
1: master's research, which was on women environmental justice activists in California's San Joaquin Valley. So for people not from California, it's sort of a, a part of the state that is not really part of its public face to the world. It's the kind of agricultural heartland of the state. Um, And so I did work there when I was a master's student at UC Davis, talking to women about their pathways into activism. Really loved that project, loved getting to talk to the activists, loved getting to hear their stories. Um wanted to kind of grow in that direction. And then when I left Davis for Santa Cruz to do a dissertation in sociology, um, I was still kind of staying connected to some of that California environmental justice, you know, world. And one of the things that was starting to to go on was um, some of the political fighting around how California's uh, climate change, policy landscape would look and and how the environmental justice world like would or would not be able to press it to to their own goals. So my original idea was actually to do a whole dissertation just on the climate politics and the California environmental justice activists sort of efforts to direct it. And then at a certain point, I realized that that was taking me in just too far down into kind of a policy and technical discussions and legal discussions. which are all hugely important, but it was pulling me away from some of the just bigger picture social movement, storytelling and kind of bigger arc stuff that I really enjoy. So I backed up a little bit and turned that into just a single chapter of the book. Um, my Ph.D. advisor was Andy Saws, who had written a book in the 90s called Ecopopulism uh, that was documenting some of the earlier stages of the anti-toxics and environmental justice uh, movement. And so I remember talking to him like, you know, I don't actually want to do this climate change <laughs> dissertation anymore. Um, and we had already gotten i had already gotten a little bit of funding for that so there was a certain amount of like okay how do we still do that to justify the bit of funding you got but also pivot to your interests and he i think you know had done that one book but then maybe stayed less involved with that movement afterwards and asked the question you know well what what happened since the 90s you know since the time period he was really involved and that kind of became where I started the dissertation project from just wanting to do a sort of big picture documentation and analysis of of what the movement had been doing and how it was evolving and changing and growing over time. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where it came from.
0: Yeah, and while we're still setting the table, I want to also hone in on a a term that you're using. So a key conceptual underpinning of the book is what is environmental justice activism, right? So I'm wondering if you could first take us through just a little bit of definition of what is the difference between environmental activism in general, and then more specifically what you mean by environmental justice activism.
1: Yeah, well, my use of that term really um, comes from the way the activists of the 80s and 90s were using it, and the way many of them continue to use it, um, although it's, taken on a a broader and broader um, set of meanings, you know, over the decades as it gets picked up and used in a lot of different spaces. Um, But so, yeah, when I talk about environmental justice and environmental justice activism, it's it's not abstract. It's um, describing a a particular, you know, historically rooted in a certain time in a certain region, the U.S. um, social movement, that was describing itself as an environmental justice movement and they were using that language to distinguish themselves from the already existing broader environmental movement, um, which hadn't really served their needs, as well as it ought to have. and wasn't being that receptive to what the poorer people in the country, what the people of color in the country were articulating were their environmental problems and needs. Um, So so that framing really comes out of a kind of conflict with the more middle class, more whiter, uh, already existing environmental movement and a desire to kind of mark them as doing something different Um, and, you know, needing to get their needs, needs met in different ways and on their own. And then at the same time, also like continually over the decades, trying to pressure the the broader environmental movement to be more receptive towards um, their needs, um, uh, both in the programming and in their hiring. Yeah. So, you know,
0: it's, yeah when it's we think good. about broader environmental movement, like what are some examples of organizations that you mean, just so we can get like an even clearer.
1: Yeah, sure. Plans. You know, uh, Greenpeace, you know, um, Sierra Club, uh, National Resources Defense Council, um, you know, any any number of the kind of larger world Wildlife Fund. Um, they're typically when they were drawing those distinctions, they were often drawing them between the sort of larger NGO infrastructure of the U.S. environmental movement. Um, sometimes, but but not always. You know, they, they weren't necessarily spending as much time distinguishing themselves from the more grassroots, more radical white led environmental movements that were doing tree sits and things like that. Although in most cases, there was not a lot of contact there um, either, um, you know, with some, with some important exceptions. Um, and, and Greenpeace is a little bit of an outlier, too, because they had. Uh, for a time anyway, a very important anti-toxics arm that actually was was pretty involved in what became the environmental justice movement. So it's not a black or white distinction, um, but nonetheless, some real differences in terms of who was in those different movements and what their goals were. Um, And the term environmental justice is really tightly tied to another important term, environmental racism that gets kind of coined um, out of a 1982 series of protests in Warren County, North Carolina, uh, where black, white and indigenous peoples were resisting a a landfill that was gonna have hazardous waste um, in their area. Um, And so that that framing of environmental racism that came out of that uh, moment Um, was partly a result of the way that the black civil rights movement leaders of the 60s and 70s sort of showed up again or got pulled into this local Warren County toxics conflict, and then kind of married the language of racism to to the environment. Um, So Environmental racism often becomes the language used to describe the problem, although there's certainly class problems there, too, that aren't exclusively race-based problems. And then after that, environmental justice shows up as a language to kind of describe the thing that set of activists are working towards, which is, yes, environmental protections, but with social justice at its heart, um, which doesn't happen automatically. It takes often some effort to bring those two things together.
0: Another key conceptual like underpinning of the book um, is understanding the difference in the interplay again, kind of a gray space that we'll keep talking about throughout our interview, but a gray space between these insider and outsider tactics. Um, so can you define what these terms mean and again like what some examples of an insider tactic might look like and some examples of an outsider tactic might look like.
1: Yeah, you know, I I picked up on these um this framing early and i stuck with it even though it's you know it it leads people down a little too much of a binary that it's either one or all the other and and there's a lot of interplay between them but you know broadly speaking um the book is charting a time period in the 80s and 90s where the environmental justice activists were so shut out of formal decision making spaces in government um and with funders that might have funded sort of more uh, traditional NGO, you know, support mechanisms that they kind of really didn't have a lot of access to those insider decision-making spaces and were left with the outsider tactics. Um, so protests, um, you know, disrupting public hearings, um, blockades, land occupations, uh, you know, shaming campaigns targeted at particular corporations, um, and over time, and due in part to some of their own successes in getting their message heard uh, and, and their strategies and, you know, a number of things that were going on um, that we can talk about later, environmental justice activists, at least in California, not everywhere, have been able to get access to a degree of those insider spaces, through becoming, you know, elected officials on local air quality boards or water quality boards or political positions or EPA positions. Um, And they've also shaped how some of those institutions run by getting them to create new positions that are sort of environmental justice positions. Um, So in that set of institutional spaces, the insider politics, you know, just looks a little bit more like business as usual kinds of um, institutional and party politics. It's, you know, get out the vote campaigns. It's trying to pass legislation. It's trying to get the right kind of people and the right kind of political offices um, to to put in place legislation and policy that, again, better addresses environmental needs, but in conjunction with social justice issues um, and without imagining that you know, somehow magically, just passing uh, better environmental regulation will necessarily benefit everyone, um, which environmental justice studies over the last few decades has shown is is definitely not always the case. Um, and sometimes, you know, broad scale environmental benefits um, that are good at one scale, the state, perhaps the country, can actually concentrate harm in a in a another location. Um, so those are some of the kind of things that. These folks are attentive to that said, again, a little caveat, and this comes up a little later in the book, is that, you know, even some of the outsider tactics have been, you know, a lot of them were sort of um, particularly of note and useful in the 60s and still have value, but there's a way that uh, the state and the police state And corporations have also kind of adapted to those things. Um, You know, the way movements are policed is a part of that. And so it's also less clear to me that some of those disruptive tactics are actually doing the disruptive work that is meant to draw attention to their cause anymore. Um, But, you know, that's an open question.
0: Right, and we'll certainly talk um, a little bit later in our conversation about how social context and like development of change over time of history like really does shape which tactics appear when and why. Um, You mentioned like the policing of disruptive tactics like has adapted essentially since the 1960s, since kind of the peak of post-war radical activism in the United States to look like something different as new liberalization takes off. Uh, We'll get to that a little bit further in the conversation, but before we, we don't wanna jump ahead too much. Um, So let's go back a little bit to kind of the beginning of the book and something that I thought was really one of the main arcs of the arguments that you were trying to make, the main kind of temporal arc. Is that environmental justice activism moved from more localized disruptive tactic activism to kind of scaled up institutional activism over time. Um, And I want to zero in on the first chapter of the book, which addresses kind of the early stages of this temporal arc. So maybe you can just walk us through a case study of particular note from the 80s or 90s that like really to you like epitomizes this like early, more outsider, more disruptive form um, of environmental justice activism.
1: Well, yeah. So one of the things that's really noteworthy in California um, is the 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 spiking um number of incinerators that were being proposed in the 80s and 90s. Um so this was happening for a variety of reasons, one of which was people didn't want to live near landfills anymore. Um, There was also some concern that the, you know, landfills, the existing landfills were all filling up and where were we going to put our trash? Um, And so the waste industry kind of responded to that by promoting incinerators as a newer and better way to manage waste by burning it instead of landfilling it. And at that time, although I think it shocks people to hear about it now, um, uh, you know, the idea was also not just to burn you know, household waste or municipal waste, but that burning hazardous waste was a great way to get rid of hazardous waste. Um, and also unsurprisingly, those kinds of waste infrastructures were being proposed disproportionately in poorer communities and in communities of color. Um, And one of the really interesting kind of smoking gun documents in in California and U.S. environmental justice history is this report called the Sorrel Report uh, that the California Waste Management Board commissioned um, from a group of consultants. And they put a whole report together on, you know, where should one propose to have these generally unwanted facilities located? And, you know, how can you how can you cite them successfully? And. Uh, The thing that got the most attention was their notes on, you know, you should put them in a poorer community. Um, You should put them in, you know, religious communities, rural communities, um, communities that are less well educated. They didn't ever in spite of how it's usually remembered, they didn't actually ever say you should put them in black and brown and native communities. But in practice, that's often what happened. And the other recommendations that they were making sort of meant that that um, BIPOC communities were, you know, um, overrepresented and where these proposals were, were being made. So, yeah, you've got this kind of spiking incinerator proposal industry. And there were certain kinds of uh policy incentives that meant all these different places or firms that didn't even necessarily have background in this technology were suddenly saying like yeah hey we'll build an incinerator too um and that led to you know really widespread very grassroots but you know with with connection to to less grassroots groups resistance to the siting of those facilities as people learned you know, what they were and what their impact would be, um, which certainly was going to be localized air pollution um, uh, problems. Um, and and sometimes, you know, fairly nasty air pollutants, dioxins, et cetera, things that, that you really don't want to be um, breathing too much of. Um, and so, yeah, the communities where they were located often got really, angry as they started to realize it wasn't by chance that their community was getting picked for one of these, but that there was a pattern of, um, kind of targeting poor communities and black and Brown communities, uh, for these facilities, um, and did very substantial grassroots organizing at a, a ton of these sites and really kind of shut down the industry for a number of decades, um, you know, before they got fully on board with what was going on, I think three were built um, in the state. Two of those um, are still up and running, one one recently shut. But I counted, you know, something around probably at least 80 incinerators that were proposed around the state that never got built. Um, you know, there's a few others that are, uh, I mean, you can look in the book if you're interested, readers and see all the technical details of how I was counting, you know, what, what counted as an incinerator. Um, But I won't bog down here too much. Um, Yeah, here, I'll just say that activists through that kind of disruptive process um, of going to public hearings and being really raucous and shutting them down, and in some cases, like running the incinerator officials out of town, uh successfully blocked like almost every one of those incinerators and if they hadn't, the state would look very, very different. you know if we had 80 some you know, waste incinerators, let alone hazardous waste incinerators dotting the, all of the the golden State. Um, so I think that's a really successful example of a more disruptive, you know outsider kind of activism um where people were finding out about those proposals often fairly late in the planning process um weren't yeah weren't part of the planning process and and managed to kind of intervene politically in force um in ways that either scared off the political support from you know whatever the county might have been Or finally just scared off the corporate um, entities that were trying to build them as like, look, this is taking too long. We're bogging down too much. It's too much of a financial suck, you know, on our resources to try and keep um, building these things. Um, Yeah. And then some of the policy language or landscape changed as well to take away some of the sort of incentives for building them. Um, But it, it does continue to be. And, you know, they still they'll still keep popping up. But I think that that is a great a great example of how successful that kind of activism can be when it's happening in a widespread way that really adds up to something significant.
0: Right. So if we think about the opposite end of the coin or maybe if we don't want to be binary, we'll just think somewhere slightly different on the activism spectrum um, is institutionalization and professionalization, which is something that occurs temporally, like slightly after this wave that you've just discussed with us. So in general, can you kind of just explain what the institutionalization and professionalization of environmental justice activism looks like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it looks like the same thing that happens in lots of social movements um, in the United States across this particular couple of decades. Um, uh, And again, it's not A total binary there. There were different kinds of organizations doing different kinds of things in the time period of my book, but but there is nonetheless this trend from outsider to insider. Um, And so institutionalization um, often meant that some of the small like grassroots neighborhoods groups Um, I mean, often they would just go away after the local campaign was won, but, you know, a good handful of them um, developed staying power by incorporating as official 501c3 not-for-profits, which gave them the ability to do more fundraising, which gave them the ability to um, hire staff, paid full-time staff to kind of work on these issues um, in a way that's, you know, All day, every day, in a way that's harder to do if you have, you know, another job and then you're trying to do all of this on your free time. Although certainly lots of people did that. Um, so yeah, they're they're becoming sort of institutionalized into nonprofit spaces. Um, and then those nonprofits are professionalizing over time. You know, they're getting better on having like a board, and the board follows certain procedures and you know, the finances are getting managed and just all the sort of normal parts of institutional culture, um, in, in professional spaces. Um, and simultaneously environmental justice is beginning to be institutionalized into the state. Um, and, and this was certainly a goal of the activists, um, but it's, so the degree that it's been successful, it's also opened up some new challenges. Um, so one of the first early, you know, big victories, or it was seen as a victory at that time, was in 1994. Um, then President Clinton issued an executive order, sort of um, telling the rest of the federal government that they needed to pay attention to environmental justice as an issue. Um, and so a number of people thought, "Oh, wow, we're really getting there. Something's really going to happen now." You know, 20. 20 years later, it's still needing to happen, Um, but that's kind of one um, historical marker of an institutionalization point into the federal government. In California, um, in the 90s, there were a number of different legislative efforts to try to pass environmental justice bills that kept getting vetoed by the Republican governor um, until we got a Democratic governor in there around 99, and then they started getting cast. Um, and so from then on, there started to be policy language within the California Environmental Protection Agency around trying to start figuring out, like what does it mean to address environmental justice issues in a regulatory structure? um and to create positions for people to work on that and then to hire into those positions um so and then the activists themselves you know are professionalizing in order to access those kinds of government careers um or they're drawing a different kind of activist you know the the college educated um activists that learned about it in school because it's now far enough along and the movement's been successful enough that the concept's being taught. uh, You know, maybe they even get a master's degree or a law degree and then they go into government. So there's something about the professionalization process that also a little bit shifts the kind of person that's in the space. You definitely get like a larger middle-class presence, um, some of whom, you know, didn't grow up middle-class and became middle class through accessing some of these kinds of NGO or state jobs. Um, and, and some that, that's not the case. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a little bit about the institutionalization into the state, into the government and like where that professionalization piece kind of happens.
0: Right, and building on this idea and to return to something that we we mentioned we were gonna talk about a little bit slightly earlier in our conversation, is when we think about like bigger macro scale social factors that caused this change, like what happened historically from like, you know, 60s zenith of kind of disruptive activism and even into the 80s still like disruptive activism is more popular to this kind of more insider professional, slower kind of more barriers to access type of activism. Like what happened in politics in California and in the United States and globally that like really facilitated this change in addition to kind of the points that you just laid out to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, a number of things are happening in the background that I talk about as sort of funneling activists in that general direction. Um, although, it, you know, it's also worth saying some of the activists always wanted to go in this position anyway, and were trying, and but it was you know harder earlier, and then then they made some inroads um, and opened the door a little bit for other people to follow them so it's not necessarily that people's goals changed it's just they were so effectively shut out earlier that they couldn't do the insider stuff that might have been their preference you know but um in the background yeah i mean a number of different things are happening um the kind of growth of the ngo sector writ large is happening in the you know second half of the 20th century um where NGOs are becoming used increasingly to sort of deal with things that state and federal government aren't dealing with, Um, especially starting in the 80s, you know, the the neoliberal moments of the 80s and 90s, you know, you get the first President Bush, sort of, well, Reagan and Bush, um, uh, you know, really making an argument that Addressing sort of poverty and hunger and, and these kinds of problems of the poor isn't really the government's job. Um, that providing social safety nets isn't their job, and that you know, volunteerism should take its place, you know, church groups, um, you know, soup kitchens, etc., a thousand points of light of, of all these volunteers coming together. Um, So there was kind of a hollowing out of the state and pressure for NGOs to form to pick up the slack. Um, And at the same time, the foundation world itself was starting to as I understand it anyway, give money in ways that were more targeted around what their strategies were. You know, they were going to outline a political strategy and then find people to implement it with their donations um, more so than they had in the past. Um, So the foundations, I think, took a little more power for a dollars. And, you know, the thing about a professional NGO is you're you do have more resources, you have all the good things that come with staff that can spend all day on these issues, um, but you are more vulnerable to your work being directed less by what the actual need is and more by what the funders will fund and what their interests are, which change. Um, so that becomes a little bit of a drawback point. So that's sort of one thread. Um There's, in other ways, a lot of the kinds of disruptive protests are getting routinized um, in different ways. So the policing of protests is getting more sophisticated. Um, You know, the, the early protests in my book weren't necessarily permitted. They were a little more, they planned, but, you know, more disruptive. And the later part of the book, the activists are going through a whole permitting structure in which the state is designing to manage protests. Okay, you apply for a permit on this day you can walk on this place. No, not in the road only on the sidewalk the police will be there to make sure you don't go on the road um, to to basically reduce the disrupt the potential disruptive impact of, of the protest. Um, and you know, in some cases, establishing, like, quote, unquote, free speech zones. Well, you can say something, but we're going to put you right here in this, you know, little space only. Um, That has not been the case for all protests. Certainly, the Black Lives Matter protests um, in the 2010s um, were, you know, some of them were happening in that way, and some of them were more spontaneous. um, And many of them were getting much more harsher, sort of oppressive police responses. Um, But, um, and certainly some of the, you know, uh, indigenous water fights have been in more conflictual spaces with the police. Um, But the groups that I was looking at, the mostly NGO-based groups in California that came out of a particular 80s and 90s, you know, self-identified environmental justice activism, were mostly in that sort of managed protest space. Um, so so that's kind of why I say that they were, you know, influenced by that broader routinization process that was happening um, and how, how protest was being managed and policed. Another thing that was really interesting is Calif- the nation certainly, but California in particular was undergoing demographic change. Um, so California in 2000 becomes... Uh, The first uh, let me make sure I don't get my numbers wrong. The first if you put all the people of color and indigenous groups together in one lump, the first sort of, quote unquote, minority, majority state um, where whites are a minority, if you can't them to all the other groups. Um, And then more recently, I don't know, 2010, 2015, um, Latinx became the single largest group in the state. Um, And you know, that, that's had a real impact. Um, it, it's not a clean, you know, people of color are still underrepresented in political roles, for a lot of reasons, but there are more of them, and especially Latinx legislators than there used to be. And the environmental justice activists have really used that demographic transition to a, try to get more people of color into leadership roles inside political spaces, and then B, to try and cultivate the ones who are already there to support their issues. Um, like, we're going we're gonna to vote for you. We're going to vote for you into office, support our issues. Um, so that's kind of opened up, you know, some doors to some degree that were closed before. Um, and it's not an easy or clean or automatic relationship, um, but it's one that's been, I think, part of how um, more EJ activists have gotten access um, into kind of state decision-making spaces.
0: Right. So yeah. just a few at yeah. the back, friends. <laughs> while you're on the topic of demographic change in California, I actually wanna take just like a quick digression to talk about California in particular, because obviously this book is specific to California environmental justice activism. But why is California kind of such a canary in the coal mine or a litmus test for what we can see in other states? What makes it so significant?
1: I mean, I don't know, actually. That's a good question. Um, It was attracting a lot of uh, uh, Central Mexican and Central American migrants for a long time, I think, before they started really populating other parts of the country as much. So it's a little bit ahead of some of the rest of the country in terms of that demographic transition of the population. Um, And it's had a bit of a leadership role in the environmental arena for a while, not forever. Um, where it's seen as something of a laboratory for environmental policy um, that might get rolled out elsewhere later or at the federal roll. Um, And I certainly saw that um, in this book, that there were lots of moments where things happening in the federal government around environmental justice policy would sort of look to what was happening in California and do something similar. And then California would look to what was happening in the federal government and build on that. Um, so kind of a back and forth exchange there. Um, and California also has some uh, ability that's sort of threatened periodically, but as far as I know, still holds to set some environmental um Uh, standards that are more stringent than the federal government does, I think, especially around car, you know, exhaust and and manufacturing. Um, And so California is a big enough market that taking cars and as example, um, you know, if one brand of car makers wants to access the California market, they have to make cars that pollute to the California specifications, but it's such a big market that then that's going to spill over into what they're doing in other places too. um, And not just be like, okay, we'll only make this one set of cars for California and then totally different ones for the other States. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I think it it, it, part of it's about it's sort of migration patterns. Part of it um, I think is about the you know the the size of the economy um and the size of the population you know the economy of california is usually goes back and forth between like if it was its own country it would be the fifth to seventh largest economy in the world like right like it's a big it's just a big state and so people pay attention to what happens there. And then like, whatever, I grew up in California. I think we're very self-centered in a lot of ways too. We're very like, California is the center of the universe. Um, so yeah, maybe that's part of it too. We proselytize.
0: <laughs> yeah. as so a fellow Californian, I understand. I, I am very similar to you in my UC tradition. I, I grew up in Davis, then I went to UC Santa Cruz, and then I went to UCLA. So a slightly different. We have one toggle there between Berkeley and LA, but... I agree with you on the the prevalence of California in the mind of Californians. (laughs) Um, And I want to take us now to the second half of the book. So the second half of your book takes us on a detailed exploration of two illustrative case studies. Uh, The first of which is four decades of activism in Kettleman City, which for those who might not know, um, is kind of like a small town, I guess, um, off of I-5 in the Central Valley. And the second case study being activism around the passage of the California Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, maybe better known as AB 32. And I'm hoping you can kind of just walk us through both of these case studies um, to let us know what these case studies show about the bigger arguments you wanna make in your book, um, perhaps starting with Kettleman City.
1: Yeah, so Kettleman Cities, in in, in at least a small circle of people in the environmental justice world, kind of an iconic case. Um, They had a big anti-incinerator fight in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, They are, yeah, a very small town off the I-5, predominantly a farmworker town, but one with a history of oil extraction as well. Um, And they host just a few miles outside of town um, what I'm told is the largest hazardous waste landfill west of the Mississippi. It's only one of its three kinds in the state of California. All three are in predominantly Latinx um, areas. Um, You know, not surprisingly. Um, And so Cattleman City without the residents knowing had already had a hazardous waste landfill constructed, you know, very nearby um, in, I believe, the 80s, 70s or 80s. Um, and activists didn't actually really learn about that, most of them, until that uh uh chemical waste management that was running it wanted to add an incinerator a hazardous waste incinerator and so this was that peak moment that i was saying before of all these hazardous waste incinerators getting um you know pitched to be built all over the state um and and the residents really as they learned about it were not having it um and really understood that they were being targeted and dumped on because of the color of their skin because of their education levels because you know many were monolingual spanish speakers because they were understood to be an easy political target um and they connected with sort of other grassroots groups that were popping up around the country um and got really well networked um, and did a lot of activism and were able to actually block that incinerator from being constructed um, through protests, through going to the public hearings, through lawsuits, through a variety of tactics. And so that, that was really seen as sort of a David versus Goliath, um, sort of impossible campaign that they ended up winning against, you know, a huge corporation um, on a global scale. Um, And it was one of those sort of early wins that was shared nationally among people in in those kinds of circles as an example of like, you can win. Um, And until my book and, you know, one or two other people that were starting to also look back at Kettleman City later, that was kind of the extent of the story. Like they won. Yay. You know, and so um, my book chapter um, and and Lauren Richter um, at University of Toronto, Mississauga also has a, a journal article that covers some of the same ground, kind of updates that case and says, okay, then what happened? You still live next to like the largest hazardous waste landfill west of the Mississippi, And in addition to that, the air you breathe is highly polluted. It's one of the most highly polluted air basins in the nation. Um, You know, a lot of the people who live there are working in the fields where they're going to be exposed to all kinds of occupational health threats and pesticides um, and pesticide drift in their houses. Um, You know, the landfill was sort of constantly trying to, you know, get bigger or add new types of waste or just sort of do more. And so they're kind of constantly fighting with the landfill. Um, And then maybe in the 20, in the aughts, I believe, then it was also discovered, oh, wait, you know, the water, the drinking water is contaminated with arsenic and benzene too. Um, And uh, so, you know, they had this important victory, but it didn't, It it kept things from getting worse, but it didn't change all the other things that were still health threats in a cumulative way, you know, that they were living not just with pesticide exposure, but pesticide exposure and bad air and contaminated drinking water and, you know, jobs that sort of cause stress on the body over the long term. Um, And with the hazardous waste landfill nearby, although it's always a little bit unclear, like, are there any direct health impacts from that or not. Um, but at a minimum, nobody wants to live near a hazardous waste landfill. And so, you know, that was, they they were kind of a smaller group of them sticking with those issues and working on them over time. Um, and then in the late 2000s, um, uh, a one of the activist groups involved there um, did a door-to-door sort of health survey I think this was with um, uh, El Pueblo which is kind of the local uh, activist group and likely in collaboration with Green Action for Health and Environmental Justice um, which was supporting them um, as it does sort of other groups around the country And they found a lot more health problems that they than they were anticipating, Um, even though they were pretty familiar with the sort of toxicity of different aspects of the environment um, and ultimately uncovered a birth um, defect cluster that sort of as they learned more and more overlapped with, uh, you know, a cluster of babies that didn't survive long past birth or uh, miscarriages um and this happened kind of right as the landfill was going through a permitting process to just about double in size um and so the activists and the residents were you know pretty concerned about, Uh, like are these birth what's causing them and is it related to the landfill Um, is living near a hazardous waste landfill calling causing these birth defects and they had to do a lot of work uh, and sort of maneuver through a variety of scales of local and state level government to ultimately have um, a kind of public health study done um, The results of which were inconclusive, um, as they typically are in these kinds of settings, it's really hard to show in a population at a population level that any one toxic exposure causes any one health outcome. Um, for a lot of reasons, those kinds of causal relationships are usually pretty hard to prove. However, you know, um, we do know that, you know, in communities with more toxic exposures in general, you have more health problems in general, um, but can't can't usually very easily say, well, this one exposure or set of exposures literally cause this set of health outcomes. Um, but nonetheless, the activists used that. Um, They were, they're basically trying to get the landfill to stop from being doubled in size. um, And I think we're ultimately unsuccessful in that. Um, And so that campaign kind of brought Kettleman City a little bit back into public attention for a time and really made it clear how, uh, how structural the problems they're facing were, right? They had this big moment in the early nineties and a big win but all this other stuff is still in place. Um, And and it's really hard to, uh, even in the face of real serious health problems, kind of pinpoint any one actor as responsible. Um, So, yeah. So that was another really kind of difficult moment. Um, And some of the larger themes of the book, I think that show up in that story are you know, how long term these projects are, the, the the activism that's needed is, um, because the problems are so kind of baked into how society is structured in ways where some people live in more contaminated environments than others and do more risky work than others do, um, how difficult it was for them to access kind of state support to A, get the, um, you know, get the health study done at all. Um, But also how they were they were able to get some state interest in ways that the state had been really kind of almost completely in opposition in the earlier round, because now you did have this whole cadre of environmental justice professionals in different pieces of the state apparatus that they could call and talk to. And I believe, you know, working through those um, relationships was how they did eventually get um, funding for a new water purification plant uh, so that their contamin- their drinking water wouldn't continue to be contaminated. Um, so it's this real kind of ambiguous relationship to the sort of professional activists in the state Um Kettleman City, the way I tell it, is one of the activist groups that has gone least down the path of let's incorporate as a nonprofit and, you know, apply for a bunch of grants and or get our people into government, they've remained um, often fairly still oppositional to state agencies and um, And yeah, the outcomes are mixed. They've had some really important victories. They've staved off a lot of what could have made things worse locally um, and are, to some degree, participating in the institutional spaces. Um, But, you know, what they've gotten is not enough, right? So their story really points to how much more is needed. And that even if we now have these institutional mandates around environmental justice and some of these staff positions and some of these funding streams on the ground, people are still living in pretty difficult circumstances. Um, so, yeah, what's happening is still like wildly, wildly below, you know, what's the kind of effort that's needed um, to help people live, you know, the way they want to live, healthy you know, without without worrying about um, what might happen to them or their kids in the future.
0: Right, right. And so if this kind of long, long-term long view of Kettleman City shows us that, and it also shows us kind of the multiple stages, like the, the long and perpetual lives of these struggles, that they don't just end with the closure of, of one incinerator or the prevention of one incinerator being built, but there are additional aspects and dimensions that ebb and flow and rise all throughout history and time. Um, if that's kind of what Kettleman City shows us, what really does like AB um, AB 32 show us? And you were kind of leading us there with the end of your answer, I think, which is just like, what are the kind of like the pros and cons of this professionalization access? Like, it can get important wins, like it can get attention from the state that you might not be able to get otherwise. But what are some ways in which activists internally are kind of in dispute over tactics and the right way to move forward for very disparate goals? Often, yeah. I mean, one more thing I'll say about
1: Kettleman City is, you know, some of these activists, they stick these fights out for decades. And there are a number of kind of environmental justice families in California that pass that local fight on to their kids and then their grandkids, um, which is kind of amazing and beautiful, but also so sad that their grandkids still need to be fighting the same fight, you know, um, so yeah, uh, so what does AB 32 teach us? AB 32 is a different kind of story about engaging very directly with the policy making and enforcement and sort of legal infrastructure around environmental issues at the state's capital. Um, and I don't know, I think it shows us on the one hand that it's really important to try to be present in those spaces and organize those spaces because the policies that happen from the Capitol like roll out over everyone. And if you don't do what you can to minimize their damage, um, you know, you're gonna be a lot worse off. And if you can get stuff that's like actively working in a good direction, you know, there's this potential to do good on a much broader scale across the whole state than just in this sort of one location. I mean, that's that's the dream, right? And I think a lot of activists have gone in that direction hoping to do exactly that thing to make a bigger impact for more people through legislation rather than sort of site by site battles, um, which take a lot of resources. I mean, the hard thing is you really need most, but people have limited time and resources. Um, so yeah, AB 32 is again, this very long story. Um, the California Climate uh, Change Solutions Act is passed in 2006, and it's passed after the sort of environmental justice advocates who are active on that have already gotten some good language into that bill that meets their needs. Um, uh. However, you know, a lot, the legislature left a lot up to um, uh, the air Air quality board to actually figure out the details of how it would be implemented. And so there's this moment where the environmental justice activists could kind of lean on their legislators and the political connections they had in the legislators to get the legislation to look a certain way But then it moves out of the legislators hands into kind of implementation in these agencies that are a little bit less, you know, they don't have as much of a way to pressure those agencies um, to implement in a way that meets their needs. Um, And so one of the really core battles of the early years was over whether or not the um, core programming that was um, targeting uh, industrial pollution around the state uh, would take place through a market-based cap-and-trade system or some other kind of more direct regulation. Um, and the Environmental Justice activists, for the most part, were very, very concerned about a market-based approach. Um, and they raised a lot of questions about A, is that going to work at all, you know, or are just corporations just going to game the system? Um, But B, uh, you know, what if you threw a cap and trade system, which regulates that, you know, the whole sector across the state has to have declining um, pollution levels of certain, um, well, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases over time, But it doesn't say where those declines have to happen. And the activists who live in poor and black and brown and native communities wanted those declines to happen where they lived specifically because they were the places, they were living in the places that had the most pollution. And there's a sort of connection between the kinds of places that are putting out a lot of greenhouse gases that cause and worsen climate change, but don't, have as much of like an immediate health impact if you just kind of breathe some of it in in and as it's distributed to the atmosphere, often also are the kinds of industries that are putting out criteria air pollutants that do have that more immediate health impact. So that's, that's kind of the key connection point. So the environmental justice activists wanted, you know, either all of the companies to have to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and associated air pollutants, um, which would make it the air pollution better everywhere or, or to have them targeted in the places where they were worst, which makes sense and which would then, you know, make their air quality better. Um, and, uh, you know, through long fights, they eventually did not, did not get that. They countersued, you know, they won a piece of their lawsuit um, against CARB, California Air Resources Board, um, that was like many environmental justice victories, uh, more procedural than substantive. So they got a judge to say that the agency hadn't adequately considered all alternatives, that they had just sort of chosen cap and trade from the beginning and run with it. Um, And so that was sort of sent shockwaves through the political world when when the judge basically says, no, you can't just keep moving forward with cap and trade and stopped implementation of the entire bill, which had a lot more things than just the cap and trade in it and said, you need to actually show that you're meaningfully engaging with thinking about other alternatives. Um, But procedural wins, you know, are, are very limited wins because you can always just go back and say okay we did some analysis on the other options and we well you know we're still going to choose the thing we wanted in the beginning which is more or less what happened here um and then there were different kinds of advisory board convenings that were um, brought together um again to advise on implementation and you know over a five-year period and then disbanded and then another one would get together another five years later um And I mean, I think I have a couple of takeaways. I think, you know, that case shows a that, yes, it's super important to be involved in those spaces because what they do has a really big impact on how people live and breathe um, or don't breathe, you know, around the state and the country. And at the same time that, you know, it's, it's hard work and, getting involved in the nitty-gritty of the policy world sort of pushes you more into the professionalization side of things because you need people who have all of those policy in and out skills. And some grassroots folks certainly develop those, but it's more common that then you're you're hiring, you know, activists that are the sort of middle class, highly trained, I'm a lawyer or, you know, some other thing. um, And I can kind of maneuver in this particular space, Um, doing policy work also ends up kind of distancing the environmental justice NGOs from their base to a degree, like they're trying really hard to represent their base's needs to the state and work for their base. Um, But at the same time, some of the policy stuff happens very quickly, it happens behind closed doors, it happens when you know, one legislator calls one EJ leader to discuss something and the vote's happening that night. Are you in? Are you out? And so the leadership of the environmental justice movement who's making those decisions is kind of farther and farther away from the base being able to participate in those decisions. Um, So that's another point, I think, of tension uh, that's hard to do. Although, you know, the groups that I Uh, Studied were, you know, pretty well aware of that and doing what they could to try and bring those two sides of the work closer together. Um, So, yeah, Um, I guess that's some of my some of my thoughts on that for the moment.
0: Yeah. And um, I guess before we end our conversation, um, I just wanted to ask if there were any big ideas you wanted to go over or points you wanted to make that you felt we didn't have the time to discuss.
1: I mean, I think, too, you know, one of the background things that's happening uh, during from the 90s as you move into the aughts is uh, some but not all of the sort of abuse that's being heaped on the grassroots environmental justice activists by government officials and corporation, you know, corporate representatives is starting to lessen. Um, so two things are happening. One, the corporations are hiring PR people to do like community relations and to try and be like, no, we're your friend. We really respect you. You know, see, we're donating to your town's like kitty soccer team with t-shirts and you know, we're hosting tours of our landfill, um, etc. Um, you know, in one case in Kettleman City, the the um uh waste management that runs the landfill like moved one of their pr people into this town it's a very small town you know and he was latino and he spoke spanish and uh i understand his wife was involved in like teaching the kids catechism on sunday and so he did a lot of like hey see we're great people too you're great people um so yeah the corporations got smarter about learning to be friendly Um, rather than to just be really offensive and obnoxious and derogatory towards the people whose towns, their facilities were located in. Um, and, you know, in government, too, there's a degree of a reduction in overt hostility and some degree of like, oh, yeah, we've got this advisory committee. Why don't you sit on that? Like a place to put people with that energy some of which becomes a kind of a co-optation process, some of which becomes meaningful, like figuring out, is this gonna be meaningful or not, you know, becomes something that activists need to think about when they say yes or no to those opportunities. Um, And then at the same time, you've got this sort of more societal level, um, you know, practice of, of smiling racism or what's sometimes called colorblind racism, where again, the racism's less overt, but it's still there in its structural capacity. And, you know, in the eighties, the activists who were being so um, um, treated so badly, you know, and called racist things and told they were dumb and uneducated and didn't understand anything. Like that was a really um, powerful politicizing force. Because it made people really angry, you know, not just do I have this polluting thing in my neighborhood, but you're, you are completely disrespecting me and my community, and so that was galvanizing. And I think the the going a little bit underground of the racism and sexism, uh, and the kind of more friendly PR um, strategies you know, they were fairly effective in sort of tampening, at least for some portion of those communities, that outrage and anger. And in some cases, even pulling people over onto their side in ways that divided communities, um, thinking about their sort of polluting neighbors that maybe hadn't been divided before.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor Perkins. This has been a really great conversation. Um, And thank you so much for your time. All right.
1: Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing it.